Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Bilal Batrawi to the show. Welcome, Bilal. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a great to have you. So Bilal is the founder of a hashtag, which is death to fluff. So what is death to fluff all about? About six, seven months ago, I started posting on LinkedIn things that I felt people would not only want to read, but actually change something in their day. What eventually grew out of that was me and the people who would regularly follow. We started saying, you know, death to fluff. No, no more of this fluffy stuff. And so it's taken a life of its own now. What's your favorite sales book of all time and, and maybe one or two key takeaways from that? Uh, the Psychology of Persuasion by Dr. Cialdini. I just don't see how you could be in sales and, and not read that. Well, great. Well, let's shift into the main topic of the day, which is all about the transformation of sales management. You've been going in and out of either enterprise account executive positions or running teams, right? Being a director or a VP of sales. What motivates you to kind of go back and forth between those roles? Being at the right company is more important than being in the right role. And so when you're at the right company, it makes all the sense in the world to accept the position that they have. So sometimes there might be leadership there and you need to be an individual contributor, or sometimes you get to be in that leadership role. So it really does depend. I've been in six different startups. The first one, Trinet, went IPO. Second one, Connectifier, got acquired by LinkedIn. The third one, Rubicon Global, is now Fortune Unicorn. That's the world I know, so I'm going to stay in it. (laughs) And for you, what's the difference in terms of the skills that you need to bring to bear in the different roles? There's definitely a world of coin-operated sales versus renaissance sales, first and foremost, which, you know, startup sales, when you're the first of or typically the first sales hire, you're not doing a lot of selling. You're actually doing a lot of strategy. You're trying to figure out what not to do because there's more to do than time to do it and more questions than answers. It's really being about ruthlessly efficient with your time versus when you're in more traditional sales role or your company has a market presence. Uh, it's a very different selling process. With the different companies that I've joined, it's always been about that ruthless efficiency of trying to find the path of least resistance from A to B to take somebody from not knowing to buying and not trying to you know get the whole value of the deal up front. Some companies have different policies about account ownership, right? I mean, I think there's a rather typical thing where people can own accounts for one year and then they have to give them up. I guess there's the other thing, which is like you just close it and you move on. When you're seeking jobs in new places, given that that's your philosophy, do you actually ask those sorts of questions about account ownership? Yeah, I think you got to. I think the level of details that you have to ask nowadays as a seller, I would advise sellers today that when you're looking at new sales roles, it's a no until it's a yes. Because the odds are, you know, with the amount of people missing quota, the, the amount of turnover in sales today, a lot of sales jobs are just setups for, for failure, not success. So you have to be very careful. Are there two or three key questions that you ask when you're vetting a position? For sure. They, I mean, every company will tell you what the top rep is making. It's like, well, what's the rep in the 50th percentile making? What's the middle of the pack making? Because, yeah, I'm sure your top rep's making seven figures. Good for them. What about the other 80%? What are they doing and why? And that's typically not the recruiter is going to know that. It's the hiring manager. And then if the hiring manager doesn't know that, well, that's a big red flag. Another good question to ask is about how they think about their their managers. A lot of companies will promote from within, expect them with the same skills that they had in their prior role to do a new role, to go from selling to managing or something like that. And it just doesn't work that way. Talk to me a little bit about you know, some of the sales management challenges or or why this is such an important topic for you? 
you know, you don't quit the job, you quit the manager. I think that couldn't be any truer in sales. I mean, you know, having a micromanager or somebody that you just feel doesn't understand you as a person, somebody who's just looking at the numbers and viewing you as just a revenue count. And, you know, it's so interesting when you find these things that transcend age, gender, time, industry, you know, product, you find these universal things that everybody goes through. And sometimes it's a bad experience. This feels like it's one of them where people have just always been in a situation where they've had a, a bad manager that viewed them as just a number, not as a person. I think it's easy to fall into the dashboard manager routine, right? It's so interesting in sales, there's this unique aspect that I just, I don't see it with my, my friends who do other things, whether they're doctors or engineers or lawyers or whatever, which is this judgment of attitude. Sellers always seem to get judged on what's their attitude, their work ethic, their attitude, you know, looking busy, putting in effort, you know, grinding, whatever it might be. We, we have a tendency to celebrate overworking, you know, that, that hustle and grind. But the reality is that hustle and grind does not necessarily mean more sales, right? There, there are ways to be efficient as a seller. In fact, sales is a losing game, ironically, right? The majority of people out there lose far more than they win. So is it easier to bump up your win rate from 15% to 16%? or to take your loss rate from 85% down to 75 or 70%. I would presume you're sort of framing that it's a lot easier to bring down your deal loss rate, right? For sure. Just simple efficiencies like that. And it's an incremental value to the seller, but it's an exponential value to the department, to the sales team. Got it. Well, you mentioned that like managers kind of inspecting or expecting on activity. I'm a big fan of the Jason Jordan and I think Michelle Vanessa. They have a couple great books out there, Cracking the Sales Management Code and Crushing Quota, which are kind of a pair of books. And there they talk about three things, right? It's activity, intermediate objectives, and business results. Where do you, on the manager spectrum, like, it sounds like you're a little worried that managers are excessively focused on activity. Where do you focus across that spectrum? We live in this world where management is so used to this very binary thinking of like inputs and outputs, right? And you've got some people who fall into camp where it's like, it's all about results only, which is like, no, that's partly the case. But when it goes wrong, you need to know why. And then you've got this other side that are so metric driven that they've become obsessed. And now you've got bad practice and malpractice of, you know, sellers faking dials to get their activity points up, even though they're on track to hit their revenue goals. Right. So there's like two extreme camps. And it's like, why can't we just be a little bit more efficient with the metrics? Like, When's the last time you saw a VP of sales sitting down and looking at pipeline and splitting it between ICP and TAM, right? The ideal customers versus target addressable market. And, you know, really thinking about email sentiment instead of the number of emails or response rate. Because it doesn't really matter if they responded unsubscribed. Yeah, that's technically a response, but that's not what you want. I always do this chart, basically, a two by two. And the chart is activity and effectiveness. What I'm trying to find is... If someone is is low activity, but they're high effectiveness, great. As long as they're hitting their number, I don't have an issue with that. If they're high activity, but you know, average effectiveness, I'm also fine if they're hitting their number. The ones that worry me are the high activity, low effectiveness people. And the reason they worry me is because they're burning contacts, they're burning accounts with a lot of mediocre activity. The other thing I do is I stack rank on that effectiveness metric. So I'm constantly studying what is it that the top whatever 10 or 20% on the effectiveness metric are doing. I want to understand what their process is and what their behaviors are so I can, if where possible, teach that to other people. I think that's fantastic because, I mean, you're going to a second and third level 
I think the danger is the managers today that sit on the first level, which is purely the number. They will fake dials just to get their numbers up. And it's like, where did that happen? I mean, I'm sure the leadership of that company, if they knew, would say, oh, this is crazy. But their emphasis and their system is causing this. The sellers don't go to work saying, I want to fake dials, but they have to in order to appease you know, the system. I want to come back to, you mentioned, right, that one of the big issues in companies is you take, let's say, your top performing sales rep and promote them to manager. Is there something inherently wrong with that? Is there a better way? Or how would you do things differently? In 2015, Google did a study about the qualities of great management. One of the things in that, there's a lot of gold in it, was they did like a stack ranking of what great managers need to do in order to reach that level. And the ability to do the employee's job, the one who's being managed job, was like fourth or fifth on the list. We think of it as one, right? Because the the qualification to get promoted is being the top rep. Yet that quality in a manager is middle, if not, you know, bottom third of the list. The things that you need in your manager are support, our guidance, our expertise, our professional growth, our things like motivation. And those are skills you don't learn by being a seller. Just because I'm the top rep doesn't mean now I, I know how to handle a delicate conversation with somebody in a one-on-one or understand ways of getting them to give me critical feedback so that they can improve or for me to give them that critical feedback so they can improve. Like Those things aren't taught simply by being the best seller, yet these best sellers are now managers in these situations. And odds are their company probably didn't train them on that. Yeah, I, I love that study. I mean, because it's so data driven behind what what Google did there, and the number one and two attributes of their best managers are actually ones that I think we can chat about because I think they are critical gaps in what you've identified as a problem with sales management. The first one is that they're a good coach, and the second one is that they have empower the team and they don't micromanage. So, if you talk, let's talk about the first one. You know, first, so you take this this top performing rep and. What is it about them that may or may not make them a good coach and what could have been done differently? It's a skill that can be learned. And there probably are people who are maybe more proficient or have the right character to do it at a better level than others. But it's something that you can learn. And I think anybody can be a coach if they just apply their mind to it. It's not like something you're either born with or you're not. And odds are, again, if that seller has been, you know, through the fires of the sales org and and achieved the top level by being territorial and, and getting there by being a fighter and getting there by struggling and working hard and doing the grind, they're going to then put that same emphasis and expectation on their entire sales team, which is the opposite of coaching, of what you want in that sort of mentorship and growth. You don't want somebody that's been burned through the fires and is now holding the flames towards you. If I'm promoting from within, I actually look for a rep that's, I would say, just technically proficient. What I look for is that that's the person that other people come to, even when they're a rep for advice and guidance. That tells me two things. It tells me, like, one, people already trust their judgment. Uh, And it tells me, secondly, that individual has a, a selflessness, right, to give to others. I think every sales organization says that they want teamwork and then they want to build that sort of environment. How often do you actually see that? Right? I mean, we, we can just go on Glassdoor and look at the average company ratings for companies in any city and, and see that you know what the sellers are saying in feedback is not. I mean, I've been in sales environments where I was told I have to log out of my laptop whenever I leave my desk because somebody can come to my desk and look at my leads and take them, right? which is crazy. That sort of selflessness, again, that's 
it's something you can build within your team. And then you can develop leaders within your team because you celebrate that selflessness as much as you celebrate a win or a deal. When sales teams put an emphasis only on numbers, only on money, it has a corrupting effect because you're taking away from things that are similarly valuable. That 35th percentile rep who is doing an incredible job coaching and helping others, but maybe isn't closing as much as the top rep in many worlds would not get a nod for a management role. I mean, excluding whomever your current manager is, if you think back to your, you know, the best sales manager you ever had, at least in terms of the coaching skill, who was that person and what made them so special in their, in their approach to coaching? Oh, I got to give a shout out to, so it's Joe Totten is his name. He's now the VP of sales at Gem. He was my manager at Connectifier. It transcended just a manager role with him. I felt like Joe understood me and knew more about me than anybody I had worked with before and knew what my wants and desires were. I felt so comfortable sharing things with him and knowing that they would get filtered in the right way. I was able just to kind of speak openly and freely, knowing that he was a full mind to filter it correctly, get the parts that needed to go where they needed to, and then coach me on the parts that maybe I shouldn't have said out loud without me feeling bad about it. It was just like, you know, I could just talk openly. And that was so refreshing to have that on a daily basis, to have somebody that you can talk openly with like that. You know, some people say that great coaches either are people who they sort of listen and then they'll ask questions, right? The Socratic method. Uh, or other times they say, like, it's not a good thing to be prescriptive, to tell people what to do, to get involved. I tend to think those sorts of things are false dichotomies. There are times where the rep is stuck and needs more prescriptive coaching. What was Joe's style like in, in his coaching? It was very much a conversation. And I remember there were times where there were friction between us where I would upset him or, you know, I would push the bounds and he would check me. And I would appreciate that because when I think about that psychological safety that, that Google talks about that high-performing world-class teams need, I think about Joe because I felt that with him. Like I could argue with him and know that he didn't think any less or more of me simply because we didn't agree on a point. And he could be harsh with me sometimes. And that was totally fine. Like there was no issue with that. When a great manager establishes that one-on-one -on -one connection, you get to push some of those means that with another manager would be unacceptable, right? Like, we, like that wouldn't happen. On the second of Google's 10 things after coaching is empowers the team and does not micromanage, the stereotypical micromanagement in sales would be the sales manager riding along on your deal and taking over the conversation, right? Uh, although I've talked to people about this and they say great managers... When a rep is brand new, they may be more active, right, in the individual deals. And as the rep gains proficiency, they start to back off. What's your philosophy about the involvement of a manager inside of individual deals? It's really the rep's comfort. I think there, there are some reps that enjoy guidance. There are some reps that want navigation. And those are two very different things. Guidance could be just deal strategy. And navigation could be really getting involved and start pointing out the directions. And sometimes it makes sense to take over. I mean, there's nothing wrong with multi-threading your manager or director or VP or whoever it may be into a deal because there's only benefit when that happens. I think there's, there's enough data on that for us to know that multi-threading is a very effective thing. So it's really, it's really rep comfort on that. And everybody's got a different style. The most important thing, though, is that the involvement never feels like it's because the rep can't handle it. Right. And that's always has to be made clear. I think great managers do a good job of that. Like, I'm not doing this because I don't think you can handle. I'm doing this because I think this will impact and augment 
what you're already doing in the deal. When it starts feeling like it's a takeover, that's when the defense goes up, where it's like, wait a second, do they not trust that I can do this on my own? That's different. As a first-line sales manager for you, what does it mean to have a clear vision for the team beyond hit the number? You know, I'm driven by a moral compass. And whenever I think about vision and strategy, I think in the business world, we like to think about, you know, this loftier idea. But I really, truly believe the way you connect with other people is through shared principles and morals. We're all hardwired to admire courage, for example. There's no society in the world or culture in the world that says courage is a bad thing. And I think when you build a team around shared values and principles, that transcends culture, gender, age, whatever it is, race, ethnicity, and so on and so forth, because we can all agree on some basic things. So when you build a team, whether it's sales or not, if you do it around shared principles, shared moral values, and everybody uses then the social pressure of the group to adhere to those values as best they can, amazing things happen. What are some of those shared principles and morals that you establish on your teams? A really big thing is like integrity and honesty. I hate when people don't take ownership when they make a mistake. Like making a mistake isn't the issue because we will do them all the time and that's life. The problem is when you don't own it. I always tell people about like the golden apology is like, listen, I'm sorry, I did this wrong thing. I shouldn't have done it. There's no excuse for it. Let me just provide you an explanation so you know the context why. Explanation, then I'm sorry again. It's the golden apology. And if you follow that recipe, Whoever you're apologizing to, their, their heart will melt. You know, the anger will go away because you're owning it, right? You're owning it and you're apologizing for it. So if a team is all doing that together, you then build that psychological safety because it's just a word. It, you know, people think like, okay, if I just hire top talent, then I'll have a great team. It's like, no, it's premeditated. There's more planning to it than that. And if you can, again, unite people around something that's deeply enrooted in our psychology, in our human behavior then you're going to get success because of that. If people do want to learn more about Bravado or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Definitely join Bravado. It's free. That's easy enough to do. And you can message me through that. And then via LinkedIn, of course, uh, please read my content. Let me know if it's fluffy. If it is fluffy, then we've failed the death to fluff moniker. and We need to delete and readjust. So please join the conversation there as well. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.